Okay. This next presentation is from the Department of Languages. Um, we've also run a MOOC recently in the autumn, um, an open translation MOOC, and I'm going to explain what that is, yeah, for those of you who don't know. These were the people who were involved in the, in this, the design and the running of the MOOC. Um, the idea was Titus, who's our colleague there, and a little bit of funding was obtained by Tita for the for teaching development grant from the Higher Education Academy. So that mainly was employed to fund a facilitator, somebody to uh, look after the forums and the running and the administrative part of the MOOC. Okay, so in this presentation we will tell you a little bit about this MOOC which we conceived as an event and why we wanted to run a MOOC as an event. Uh, we will tell you about open translation and how this MOOC was structured. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about how we measured success, how we evaluated it. Um, Miriam will explain a little bit the, the story of one participant. We followed, tracked one person through, and so how this person engaged with the MOOC. And then a little bit of discussion at the end about what does learning in a MOOC mean. So... First of all, we, we have talked, Martin has explained about content MOOCs and connectivist MOOCs, MOOCs which are about network. We've then heard about experimental MOOCs, all sorts of different kinds of MOOCs. Um, what, what grabbed us here was the idea of a MOOC as an event, as a, as a way of raising awareness, bringing together a community of people who could just talk about, they, they are interested in a topic and they can get together and they can work and they can talk about this topic in a sort of more structured way. So a, a little bit like an exploratory path for a group of people who want to come together and look at a particular topic. The particular topic that we wanted to look at was open translation. Does anybody know what open translation is? Translation is described as this discipline that is at the intersection between open content, open source software, and open production models. So it's a way of harnessing the power of the crowd to use open, so open source software, to use free software to translate open content. There is a, a manual, a FLOSS manual, I don't know if you're familiar with the FLOSS manuals, on open translation, and the author of this part, Hyde, he says, it makes use of free open software and open collaboration to engage a distributed volunteer workforce in the translation of resources that have been published openly on the web. And we see this as a, a way of maybe solving the accessibility barrier that we have with OERs, with open content, in terms of language one of the great barriers to open content is the language barrier. Uh, in this country, maybe, people are not so aware, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't speak English. So, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so, um, and likewise, you know, if you publish your OERs in Spanish or in Chinese, there'll be a lot of people who can't access them because simply they can't understand the language. So, this idea of having a model that encourages peer participation, crowdsources the effort, and in this way enables the translation of open content in the way that Wikipedia is already harnessing this power. It has a community of translators that translate Wikipedia content. The TED Talks have already organized very well-structured 
community of translators and so on. So we wanted to explore how to raise awareness about this idea of open translation. So now Miriam is going to tell you how the course was structured and what we did, and then So OT12 for Open Translation 12, its home was in the lab space, it's still there, you can still go there and look for OT12, you will find it. Um, and what it basically was, was a platform, it provided a platform like George Simmons said, this is what MOOCs actually ultimately are, MOOCs are platforms. And uh, in terms of the CMOOC, Connectivist, XMOOC, Money-Making MOOC, or the in-between hybrid versions of MOOCs, this was probably needs to be classified as a task-based MOOC, if you think in terms of network MOOCs, task MOOCs, task-based MOOCs, and um, content-based MOOCs. It was... Uh, it had, of course, a structure like the other MOOCs had a structure. It uh, ran for overall nine weeks. There were eight weeks of activities and one week of, el of evaluation. And um, the main purpose of the event was to explore open translation tools and open translation practices. Now, in every week, uh, we had a bit of background reading. We had one or two clips that we asked participants to watch. There were one or two forums to engage with. Uh, there was subtitling and translation work to be done. Uh, we also ran a wiki over the entire period on quality assurance issues for open translation projects. And we had weekly webinars using Illuminate with guest speakers, which we recorded and made them available to those who couldn't attend. Uh, we also had a blog where we accumulated uh, URLs, blog addresses mainly, from, from sites where people were uh, talking or doing things in relation to OT12, but outside our hub, outside the lab space. And something we had initially not planned for, but which turned out to be very crucial, for every week during those eight weeks, we, we produced digests in the middle of the week and digests at the end of the week, summarizing the highlights of the MOOC, of the event from that week, so that those who hadn't been there, or even those who had been there, had a summary or could catch up with what had happened. Yeah? And if you ask yourself now, so what were you actually translating? And I'm sure it's um, we, uh, uh, we translated a little bit uh, of material from an OER on translation theory that was to start trying out the translation workflow through Transifex that we were using. And then we moved on to uh, Learning to Learn, which is an open education resource from the Open University from the Bridge to Success. So all this is available for free. You can have a look at it and open learn into the lab space. Yeah, data. Yeah, now how did we go about uh, gathering data? Well, both uh, in a quantitative and qualitative fashion, we have overall three surveys. Uh, at the beginning, we try to find out a little bit about the participants' backgrounds, their language background in particular, and also about their uh, expectations. And then at the very end, we ran an evaluative survey. And we also look 
and help in looking and continue to look at the Wikipedia analytics and at the movie blogs for the site. Um, well, in terms of the participants, these are the first of the main languages of those who came along for the ride. They were mostly interested in translating into English or Spanish. Um, some said also they wanted to translate into Brazilian, Portuguese, French, German, and Italian. So quite um, in, in, in contrast to what we initially thought we would be doing, that is mainly translate learning to learn from English into Spanish to make it available to the Spanish-speaking world, we ended up having quite active and quite successful Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese translation group to translate the material into Portuguese. Um, and uh, the majority, maybe also important, rated themselves quite proficient in their second language. It's not surprising because most of them, as you've seen in the moment, are also professional or semi-professional translators. Yeah? And quite proficient means, I don't know whether you're familiar with the European, Common European Framework of Reference for Languages, that, that means being able to operate at the C1 or even C2 level at the other, in the other language. Yeah? Um, well, as you can probably expect uh, from those who come along to take part in an event that is around translation, a lot of them already had some professional translation experience or um, ex experience with translation, but they're not really necessarily professionally. And only quite a uh, low percentage with no experience of translating whatsoever. So again, this confirms what has already been said a couple of times this morning, that these people that come to MOOCs are already quite skilled, quite capable in one way or another. Definitely applies to our crowd as well. But maybe not a skill that MOOCs or skill that no. online learning. No. That skills were in the content part, exactly. not on the learning yeah. delivery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, when we asked them what were they hoping to get out of it from taking part in it, and they of course again were surprised, most of them said that they wanted to learn more about translation tools, techniques, and translation skills. Um, but there were also quite a few who simply came, and this, this has also been mentioned by Martin and Simon uh, that they came to find out about MOOCs themselves, about open, uh, about doing things online, about open tools, online pedagogy, and some also to develop second language and literacy skills, and quite a few, not many, but quite a few, that I just want to become more confident. And um, what would they expect from us? We also wanted that to know beforehand in terms of our own expectation management. Um, definitely guidance, uh, so definitely they needed a sense of direction, they wanted to be told what to do and when to do it, which might contradict a little bit this other way of being skilled that was mentioned earlier today, that most people who come to know how to do things online collaboratively or on their own in whatever fashion. Definitely here a need or a wish, a desire for guidance from those who participated. Yeah? And also they wanted to be, to be kept engaged by us. That's another answer to another question. So what, should, what did they think would make for a successful move? Well, again, um, beyond 
the main content, that is exploring open translation tools, a main success, a perceived success factor, the level of guidance and support they would get from us, from the organizer, and also interesting uh, they, that they also mentioned the, the need for the pedagogic design to be clear and coherent, and then actually only 67.3% saying working collaboratively with others in terms of a success factor for a MOOC. Yeah. Um, now, what is a successful MOOC? We've talked about this a bit already uh, or heard a bit about it. And I think we would like to shift the focus of this discussion a bit away from what is a successful MOOC to what is success in a MOOC. Now, success in a MOOC, according to Dave Conye, is, uh, can be broken down into five phases or five steps. It, uh, you come in and it starts with the orientation phase where you look around, where are the materials, where are the links, what is it, what I need to do every week, what is the time of a live session, if there is one. And then after that initial orientation phase, you start to declare yourself. Yeah? So you need to look where is the place where I can put my reflections, my thoughts, my musings, and where I can write and type and hopefully get some feedback and some comments from others. Yeah? And this could be, and in our case, was one or two uh, discussion fora every week. So you start declaring yourself, come says, and then nothing happens. <laughs> No one seems to be interested in what you have to say or in what you are doing. And that is actually quite normal. And it's probably also part of this other experience we've heard a little bit about, the, the chaos, the confusion, or whatever. Yeah, that This is one dimension of it. You finally get started, and then you remain alone. And then he says, actually, Kamie, this is then where the responsibility, the onus, shifts really onto the skilled participant, where you really systematically start, need to start to network. You need to look for the others who came to this event for exactly the same reasons that you joined it. Yeah, Look whether someone is posting something that chimes with what you are thinking or with what you have said or what you have posted. Yeah? The connections and the comments is what the course is all about. They call me, says, a discussion is what you took the course for. So if it's not really happening, you need to make it happen. Don't wait for it to happen to you. It's unlikely that that will be the case. Mm -hmm. And after a while then, through successful networking, you will be able to find the cluster of participants in the event who is exactly interested in that little bit of whatever it is that drew you to that particular move. Yeah? So really, it's like a bit of zooming in. And after a while, once you have found your cluster, once you've operated for a little while in your cluster, then you can or might even want to focus in a bit further where you then start working on an application program together or on a paper or on a dedicated project or whatever it is. So very much in the <coughs> original connectivist or elitist kind of way of thinking of a MOOC, a bit of an ideal scenario, but these are in theory the five steps of being successful in a MOOC for an individual. Um, 
And here we've, we pulled out one student, Julia is not her real name, by the way, and we are already in the networking phase, yeah, we are already at stage three, um, where she then finds those others within our MOOC that also want to translate from English into Brazilian Portuguese, yeah. And she asked someone else, maybe can you help me, may you be able to correct my translations and here a bit of evidence, there's much more than that, just some sound bites or post bites for you. And then when it comes to the clustering, eventually the team has found itself, all the Portuguese translators are together and they have this kind of the we and the kind of us as a group, us, the cluster, working together on these translations from English to Brazilian Portuguese. Yeah. So going back to this idea of how we measure success, we looked at whether, you know, we can look at what is success, what is a successful MOOC for the institution, but also what is a successful MOOC for the individual. So for the institution, there are some measures of success that we all used to, you know, the registrations, all these kinds of things, which don't really sit very well with a MOOC, because you get a high dropout rate, Engagement is very uneven. You know, some people sort of dip in and out of it, and they're very engaged for one week, and then they, they don't turn up again until the end. There is no assessment in our MOOC. There was no assessment. There was no accreditation. So all the things that an institution would normally use to assess how successful something is were well applied here. So we decided to look at what was a successful MOOC for the individual, and that's why we did an evaluation survey and looked at what. Um, what kind of things our participants had derived from the MOOC, what kind of big impact it had had on them. There's the issues that of student investment, which we'll discuss later. You know, there's a lot of investment to do a course with the Open University. You have to pay a lot of money. You have to commit yourself to a certain amount of hours a week. You have to rearrange your life to be able to do the course at the same time. Here, there's very, very low investment. You just basically click a button and say, oh, I just registered for that. So as there is very low investment, the penalty for not completing <coughs> is very, very low as well. So we need to look at, at that. So from a university or an institutional point of view, we could just drag out the statistics and say, oh, look, you know, it's so many thousands, page views, and blah, blah, blah. The figures we have, 600 people actually registered or showed an interest initially, and then from those nearly 300 actually registered for the course. The little digest that Miriam was talking about, that was sent to all 600 people twice a week for the whole duration of the course. And they were told each time <coughs> if they wanted to be taken off the list, they could just email back and say, take me off the list. Only one person decided to be taken off the list. So this information was going to a, a big number of people anyway. So we're looking at this, um, okay, sorry. Um, looking at the numbers, this is not a Coursera or an edX course. So we wondered whether it was a MOOC at all, whether it was maybe a took a tiny open online course, <laughs> or maybe even a nook, a niche open online course. Because this was quite a sort of a niche activity. People had to be highly skilled into languages, had a translation background, and so on. So whether we can call it a MOOC or not, I think you know, the theory is that not all MOOCs are massive, not all MOOCs are open, etc. So, et so looking at 
had learning and the move. So we thought, okay, so what is what is learning for the participant? What is this participant actually getting out of being in the MOOC? Um, I think the idea of the event around which the network can be created, we saw quite a lot of evidence of that. You know, and people sort of mentioned that in the evaluation. He said, well, I'm here alone, but I'm writing, reading ideas, I'm feeling connected. So people had used this move as a way of finding those people that they wanted to discuss this subject with. The participation, the level of participation wasn't easy. Some people felt a little bit outside the group because simply they were not professional translators or had no background in translation and they just felt a little bit unequipped to actually give an opinion or discuss things. Others were quite um, positive about the fact that there was a good mixture of people there and that some people were highly skilled at translation, for example, or professional translators. We actually had a professor from an Australian university who writes on open translation and knew a lot more than us about it. <laughs> so that was quite useful as well. Uh, but people sort of, there was all sorts of levels of skills in the group and that was quite, quite good for the group. People felt they learned a lot from each other. And then we started to think about, you know, how we measure learning. Well, in this, in this context, you know, translation is a specific kind of subject where it's, it's the process as the content. People who study translation study it by doing translation. Very few people actually theorize about translation. So people wanted to do things. That's why Miriam talked about a task-based MOOC. People came to actually try things out. And we gave them that possibility of this week we're going to try this tool and this week we're going to try that tool. Um, so there wasn't so much uh, content that had to be conveyed to these people. You know, there, there was a, it was more like here is some content and here is some opportunities to apply and engage with these tasks. The idea that active participation can appear passive, the, the fact that people pick something from the MOOC and then they go away and they do a whole lot that you can't see. But they're doing it and they're using it. And I think there's an old, a, another issue in that as educators we are very much used to an artifact, a product of the learning. We want to see something, we want to see an essay, we want to see a presentation, we want to see a portfolio. And that is the evidence of learning. And what happens when you don't have that evidence because you haven't got assessment in place? And how do you know then that the learning has taken place? Um, so, some of the quotes from the evaluation survey, somebody says, you know, I just got, you know, I got myself as a translator or an you know, ONG is an NGO, actually. Um, but in Spanish it's an ONG. <laughs> so, uh, somebody had used the translation quality seminar, they had used that to apply in their dissertation. Some people mentioned that in their university course, their teacher had asked them to um, divide themselves and attempt several different tasks in this MOOC as part of their course. So there was an awful lot of um, bits of evidence that people had actually derived some learning from this course, but it's very difficult to capture. And there was a, a blog post that um, caught our attention in January. Um, this gentleman Balch, he'd done a computational investment course and he, was, he did a whole blog post about uh, dropout rates and does the, do dropout rates mean that your MOOC is not successful? 
And I'll let you read this because I found it extremely interesting. So this was actually a comment that was left on the blog post. So the blog post was about how dropout rates and the fact that you know a lot of people sign and then don't follow the course and how do you prove to your institution that the MOOC has been successful if you don't have that evidence of the numbers, you know, people submitting the assignments or attempting the quizzes or whatever. And this person actually wrote a comment on that and said, I was a student in your course. I am probably one of those who appears to have left the course, but I actually have used all the stuff in this course to do, you know, the whatever he does in the stock exchange in Bulgaria. <laughs> so that's quite extraordinary that somebody is actually um, applying that knowledge in such a, a real way. So a few conclusions from us. Obviously, there's a need for self-motivation. There's a need for participatory literacy skills because you you can't acquire them on the MOOC. The MOOC is fast moving and things are happening and to a certain extent you need to be able to navigate <coughs> that content and to be able to participate in that in that event to get some benefit from it. Success is measured in different ways and sometimes it's very it's not obvious what success is. And the interest, you know, with a normal course, there's an interest in getting a qualification, achieving a degree, I've paid my money, therefore I want a certificate. This was very much a, a volunteer-minded community of people, many of whom were already engaged in volunteer translation. So they maybe were interested in a different kind of reward. Some of them were interested in meeting other people who were doing the same, or finding out about more efficient ways or more efficient tools for doing the job that they were already doing finding more about it. And I think this quote has already been more or less given. Um, we see a MOOC as an event is doing something different from a course. So we don't see it as a competition, direct competition to a university course. How MOOC was trying to do something different, raise awareness, bring people together, spread the word as it were. And I, we think in that respect it was successful. Do you have any indication of whether how how many other participants that a particular participant might know before they join? How many other you could say in our MOOCs it's just a lot of people who never know each other don't know each other beforehand yeah. did, did any of the participants know many of the other participants beforehand not really, not really. <coughs> I mean there was there was some of our ALs <coughs> in the MOOC we disseminated it through word of mouth and, okay. and well, languages lists the and things like that I, reason I asked because you raised there, the issue about this being a community of practice. Mm -hmm. No, I would have said it, it's not yet a community no, of practice. No, it's not. Practice. You, you mentioned it. We're using so the, yeah, we're using the MOOC as a way of coalescing or, or, or helping this community sort of come together. Just as before, huh? come back to community stages. 
Okay, but you also talked about it as an event mm -hmm. in terms of it being a community of practice that that's, they need to be sustained in some way beyond this particular event with other events and, and things like, like that. So I'm just in, intrigued. You know, it's very, all very well to put these things on even for a niche group like this to do these things. Well, I think, I think, I think we need to think through carefully the <coughs> ideas of social learning and communities of practice or even networks of practice and what that would, might mean for a type of MOOC if it is around areas of professional practice or whether the MOOC might be around a community of interest or whether it's, this is actually more a task-based community for a defined time and it's not part, it might be within but not necessarily a strong part of broader community practice. The other way around, we have not done any follow-up. We, have, we haven't chased our participants because it is very, very likely, which we can gather from blog posts and contributions, that those who became aware of other crowdsourcing translation initiatives, like Global Voices, for example, we had some <coughs> who gave a talk, then also benefited from the participants. And that they got drawn into the community, into the Global Voices, into the larger Global Voices translation community. So we don't know about the snowball effect of what we've done. Exactly. I mean, open translation is an existing community of practice. Yes, yes. In a sense, this was an event to try and introduce some new people to an existing yes. community of practice. Yes. It wasn't, there was no aspiration to set up a new community of practice. No, it's not necessary, really. No, exactly. Get rewarded, you know, you are translator of the month, you are top person who's translated the most Spanish resources or whatever, you know, so that's those communities are already functioning. Uh, yeah, we're very interested to see, you know, the kind of, you take, uh, the progress model for success, but, yeah, I've seen in our move, some people, <coughs> you know, as attention was, you know, uh, one of the participants kind of tongue in cheek said, you know, I came here for you, great sage, to fill me with knowledge. Yeah. I mean, some people come to it and they're not interested in that. They just want to you know, so didactically go through some content. And how do you manage that? Because, yeah, it's, it's, you know, going back to the issue of the contract you have as a learner, they might be coming in with very different expectations. I think the expectation management comes from very clear um, information at the beginning of the course of what's going to happen. So people were told every single post you put on the forum will not be replied to. Every single bit of translation you do will not be checked. You know, there will be a little bit of a sort of um, peer review of the translations, but they were told from the beginning that we were not there to provide that. And I also think what, what we <coughs> preliminary conclusions of ours are not only telling people what are the goals, what, what are the outcomes potentially of this MOOC or of this event, also being very clear about the skills, the participation skills in particular, that you need to experience success during this event. Not, not many, I mean, I have yet to see a MOOC that does it, actually. Yeah? John? That's the last question. Just pick up the participation learning skills. Yeah. Your, your MOOC seem quite different from some of the others, and mm -hmm. the, the focus actually did seem to be on translation. Not on learning about moves. Yeah. A lot of other people seem to be going to them in order to learn about the method. And the flip side of that is that it's a way of teaching people new ways of learning. And so on. Yeah. 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 Ye
Um, and that, that seemed an interesting tension then, because you were saying that actually people needed that stuff before they came to the course. Yeah. Well, do, do you think actually a lot it was people, a virtue? A lot of the people who came to us were very used to online environments, not necessarily used to online learning. So it wasn't that they couldn't navigate a forum, you know. They could do those things, but they hadn't done them for a learning purpose before. And they weren't there to learn how books work or, you know, how do I... What do I do in a MOOC? That was, you know, MOOCs. A lot of them said at the beginning, I didn't know what a MOOC was until you, you know, I read the blurb for this course. So they were there for the translation, not for the MOOC. So we're trying to make the MOOC sort of disappear in the background. Okay, I think we're going to stop here because we've got the last presentation with Mike Sharples um, on future learn. Mike. already seen. So somebody's asked, is this the same as the presentation that I gave at the Learn About Fair? And the answer is pretty similar. So if you've already seen that one, then you may want to get an early lunch. If you haven't, then please stick around. So I have to put my back to everybody to... This is one word. Okay, hello everybody. So, I'm Mike Sharple, and at the moment I'm wearing at least two hats. So, um, my normal hat is as Professor of Education Technology in IET. Since um, January, I've been wearing a FutureLearn hat for between one and one and a half days a week, um, because I've been seconded to FutureLearn Limited. Um, which is the company that's been set up wholly owned by the OU for running FutureLearn. So I'm finding it very difficult to wear two hats. Um, at the moment, I'm going to be talking about FutureLearn, wearing my FutureLearn hat to people. <coughs> so um, just to give you the, the context. I'm going to talk about the story so far, um, which isn't very long. So this is the overview of FutureLearn. It's a new company. Um, it was uh, set up by the Open University, and at the moment, the Open University is the only investor in that company. So uh, Martin Bean is the chairman, and there are other uh, senior members of the university who are on um, the board of FutureLearn. Simon Nelson was appointed um, to be CEO of FutureLearn um, back in November, and he has a very interesting background. He's led major projects, including um, major BBC online projects at the BBC 
radio and TV. Um, the aim of FutureLearn is to offer three open online courses from leading UK universities. And those are the ones that have signed up so far. Um, and you can read the list there. The most recent sign-up is the British Council. So it's not just universities now. Uh, we've got the British Library and the British Council who are also members um, of the FutureLearn partnership. And it's quite likely that there will be other universities that are signing up too. Um, not just in the UK, there's an intention to um, have uh, overseas universities join the FutureLearn partnership as well. It's developing a unified software platform and a suite of courses. So it will be a new technology platform as well as a new suite of courses. And I'll talk a little bit about both of those in a minute. Um, in, uh, the intention is that in June 2013 will be um, the first internal software um, or version of the software and the first internal courses for testing. Um, there will be uh, larger scale internal courses but still with a very restricted group of people um, in July 2013. And in autumn 2013, um, FutureLearn will emerge with the first public beta courses. So those will be the first that will be visible to the outside world. And the intention is that for each partner there should be at least two courses. So there will be a large stock of courses right at the start, um, at least two from each partner. And by public beta, it doesn't necessarily mean full scale. There may be restricted um, entry to those initial courses because, as will come on, scalability is an important issue. So, um, Ah, there we go, yes. Um, so FutureLearn has already had um, significant news coverage. You've probably seen some of it, um, particularly in the launch period in December um, 2012. Very favourable. Um, it was beautifully managed, the, the launch of um, the FutureLearn concept and the FutureLearn company. Um, and all of the coverage so far has been favourable, and that's an example. OU leads universities into online venture, so favourable not just for FutureLearn, but also for the Open University as the leader of this initiative. And this is a FutureLearn vision statement. Um, so it's kind of semi-public. I, I gather that Martin Bean's giving a talk probably today um, that's presenting this vision statement. So um, that kind of encapsulates what FutureLearn is intending to be and do. So if you look at it, um, the ones in red there are the pedagogy of FutureLearn. So the teaching, learning, and assessment. And it's worthwhile just going through those in a little bit of detail. So firstly, as you might imagine, FutureLearn is intending to be open to all so that anybody can register and join a FutureLearn course and also that there should be no um, prior qualifications or um, uh, prior learning that's necessary to do a course. Um, there, obviously there will be courses at different levels of sophistication, different levels of um, technical or um, other complexity, but the intention is that it should be open to anybody. Um, it also means open to anybody with regards to accessibility as well. 
Uh, and so building in accessibility into the future learning platform is another important issue. Then there's this um, social learning through doing. So that's kind of code word or phrase for um, social constructivist learning. So one of the ways that we want to be different from the current notion of the US MOOCs is that building social learning right into the core of the experience so that you will be joining a learning community, that you will be engaging in social learning practices, not only receiving content. So it's not primarily instructor-led, it's primarily social learning experience. And the phrase world-class storytelling, um, the reason for that is, that, again, it's a kind of code word, and it signifies the, uh, the input that the BBC is having. So many of the people who are engaged, like Simon Nelson, but also some of those in the core team, come from a BBC background. And initially I was rather suspicious of this. This is the BBC taking over um, our education with you know, BBC-type um, program content. I think it's going to work really well because what the BBC will bring or what the people with that experience will bring is a notion of narrative. So instead of just taking individual components one after the other, there is a flow of learning, a learning journey. Um, and thinking very hard about how you support that journey, that progression, is again going to be a core aspect of the future learning proposition. Whether it will work and how it will work remains to be seen, but that's the intention. So that's why that phrase is there. Um, World-class storytelling. Anytime, anywhere. Um, again, it's not just there um, for show. The intention is right from the start to build the future learning across multiple platforms, including desktop, tablet, and smartphone platforms. So it will be available on all of those platforms. It doesn't mean that the same experience will be on all of those platforms. Um, and that there will be some courses where it makes a lot more sense to work in a desktop um, environment. For example, say a creative writing course, it wouldn't make sense to engage in a creative writing course in a mobile phone. But you might want to access some of the materials, you might want to get course updates. So the intention is that people will have the opportunity to access it across multiple platforms, not necessarily be constrained to the lowest common denominator. Um, best online learning materials, and that's what we do, and we do well. Um, and also data to improve learning. So learning analytics, again, will be at the centre of future learning, taking data to improve the quality of learning. So to support the learners um, and the tutors and the course team leaders and the institutions. And then celebrate small steps of progress. We want to get away from the notion of dropout and failure. Um, as you were saying, that uh, there are people who don't see themselves as failures. They see themselves as having successfully engaged with a MOOC, even if they stay for one week, even if they don't participate to the full or in the way that you might expect from a normal participant on an online course. They get something out of it. So we want to find ways to celebrate progress and performance and success rather than um, get people concerned about failure and dropout. So this is what a typical future learn MOOC will look like. Six to eight weeks, broadly at undergraduate level, though there may be some more at postgraduate level. Um, and as I said, they will be open to all, and the aim will be to 
for people who are not experienced in study at undergraduate level to help them through at least the early stages. Two to six hours a week study, including a combination of delivered content, formative assessment, and social learning for every group. Each video or audio element, typically five to ten minutes. Courses organized into week-long units that are given a, given a title and clear learning goals. Each unit ending with a formative assessment exercise and celebration of progress. And a course ending with a longer piece of summative assessment and a badge. So it's not more of the same for the OU. For example, it's not supported online learning in the way that we know it with AOLs and tutorial support. There will be a much greater emphasis on peer learning and peer support and also much greater emphasis on informal access and access from multiple locations for shorter durations of time. And we will expect that people will come onto FutureLearn courses with a wide range of intentions and interests, ranging from, uh, I just want to see what it's like, up to uh, wanting to gain um, professional accreditation. So, we're still, this is still very much work in progress at the moment, but we're looking at different types of MOOC. So, what, so number one is what you might expect. So it has a defined and start and end, it will be scheduled. Um, and again, because we've got this BBC input, they're good at doing this sort of thing. You know, scheduling, announcing, making sure that people know when something is happening. So it will be very clear when MOOCs are happening and how you can register and join up for them. And then there's a second variety, which we call in carousel MOOCs. Um, I don't know if we invented this phrase, but there we are. It's ones that you can jump on and jump off. So they may be continually rolling ones, um, where each week um, has a progression in itself, but it's not necessary to have um, studied the previous week. You can jump on it any week and then carry on studying. So you could imagine, say, uh, I don't know, a philosophy one, where you've got different um, philosophies each week um, and that you study a particular philosophical um, uh, subject of interest during that week. And then mini loops, which again is a, I don't know whether we've invented the phrase, but they're short ones. So ones, again, that are, have a coherence to them, that have a beginning, a middle and an end and a progress, but they could be much shorter, maybe intensive. Um, with a still with a defined course structure. So that's what a typical eight-week MOOC would look like. You're going to have week-long units of learning, um, and within those, learning blocks, what we're calling pedagogic Lego blocks. So you've got a, a blocks of learning that have an integrity in themselves, so that they have a pedagogic integrity, but can be put together. Some of those blocks may run in parallel, so you may have a... a, uh, a, a group collaboration block running along in parallel with some delivered content. But you have the notion of learning blocks. And each learning block is supported by the FutureLearn platform through a set of um, software tools. So we're thinking very hard and planning very hard for the pedagogy. Um, and again, I think that's working well now. Um, initially, the team that came primarily from the BBC came in with a particular notion of um, engagement and um, uh, interaction. I'm very pleased that they have taken on board, not just in a superficial way, but in a very deep way, 
the notion of pedagogy, of teaching, learning, and assessment, and having this uh, built right into the core of the FutureLearn platform. We've got a learning advisory forum, which consists of academics from the OU that advise the core team. I'm working as the, um, the uh, academic lead for FutureLearn. We've got uh, a former PhD student of mine who um, is in the core development team, and we've got other people with um, academic, deep academic knowledge who are in the, the main future learn proposition team. So the pedagogy is embedded right into the core of the future learn uh, design and evaluation. And these are some of the types of pedagogy that we want to support. And as I say, this notion of pedagogic Lego blocks. So um, the reason I put this up um, from well, you know, John Hattie's Visible Learning is not that we want um, that sort of um, analysis of meta-studies to drive what we're going to choose, but we need to provide evidence that what we embed into FutureLearn has um, an underpinning rationale. Unfortunately, um, the sorts of um, teaching and learning that are supported by studies of um, factors that affect student achievement match pretty well to what we would want to do anyway. Provide feedback, teach clarity, enable reciprocal teaching, um, mastery learning, providing worked examples. So there is a nice fit between what we would want to do and the underpinning evidence. And so then it's joining it all together and we're thinking hard about the learner experience. And there's three, four main aspects of it. Joining, and it's not just joining a particular course, but you'll also be joining the FutureLearn platform and seeing a range of different courses. So you need to be able to find it and you need to be able to know what courses are available and whether those courses suit you. So it has to have a very, uh, it has to be appealing, have to be able to find relevant courses, it has to have an elegant design, and the first five minutes experience we're thinking very hard about, because it's very easy to turn somebody off, not just an individual course, but a whole experience in the first five minutes. And then learning, right from the start, joining an active learning community and knowing who else is in that learning community, high quality content with a human face. So it's maybe something that we haven't done so well at the OU in the, the last decade or so, having a human face, um, somebody who is the face of the course, which may not be, or that there are two different faces. There may be the star academic who appears on the introductory video, but then there is the person who um, is the one who's taking you through the course, guiding you through the course. So we want to think about how we bring that human face in. And live network learning. So times when uh, you come together for an event, it might be right at the start, it might be for a pass, it might be for a social learning experience or for a shared assessment. Um, reward, so that you can reflect on performance, gain credit, so that um, FutureLearn is putting in place a credit awarding process, um, so including both certificates of completion and also um, examining for credit. So there will be a credit awarding process, probably or almost certainly will be paid for, but you will be able to take the course without um, 
that uh, without having to um, pay. If you want to gain credit for that course, you may well have to pay. That's part of the future learn business model. And the progress. So not just thinking of an individual course, but then how do you progress on? Not necessarily on to further future learn courses. You may want to progress on to open learn, onto or onto an OU qualification, uh, onto or because we're in partnership with um, 20 other organisations, progression onto qualifications for the other partners as well. And we must forget that this isn't just an OU system. This is a system that's now involving nearly 20 partners. So that's. Just to show you how we're starting to think about course design in terms of discover, join, learn, reward, progress. And learning analytics. Um, so as I said, analytics will be built in to future learn to be able to collect, visualize and analyze data from individuals and groups. We have to make sure it abides by the highest ethical principles and practices because this is uh, not just um, our brand as the Open University that's on show here, but brand from 20 leading UK universities. So we must abide by the highest ethical practices in terms of data management and in terms of letting the users know how their data will be used. Um, and then to provide data to partners to improve course choice and design, to the academics and other educators to refine teaching in real time and for the next presentation, and then to the learners, you know, how am I progressing, how am I doing compared to others, what could I do next, and people like me are also doing this. And then to researchers, so there is the opportunity for carrying out A and B comparison studies, what would be the effect of adding this component to a course, and more generally, to engage in evidence-based education. I mentioned accessibility, so from the start, FutureLearn platform will be designed for mobile web access. Um, it will be based initially at least on HTML5 browsers. Um, the reason for that is to be able to provide rich media content. A modular design, so unlike um, the BLEs you know and love, the intention is not to have a monolithic system, but a system with a very small central core. Um, things like registration and identity management, and then modules that can be swapped in and out very easily. So if a module isn't working, or if we need to add another one, you can swap them in and out. So a very modular system. Following accessibility guidelines, semantic markup and content, so that you can um, use um, screen readers with them, but also so that all the core content of FutureLearn can be searched through a search engine like Google. So the intention is that you can find any of the content um, through a search engine. The content may well say, this is part of a future learn course. If you want to study it, then click here. But you will be able to browse the, the content from outside. Graceful degradation of content and tools. So, for example, it will still be accessible to users with JavaScript turned off, but some features, as you would expect, may be missing. And it aims to strike this difficult balance, and it's always a difficult balance, between accessibility, limited time for development, and limited budget, the commercial nature of FutureLearn, we mustn't forget that FutureLearn is a company, um, and innovative and delightful user experience. So trying to get that right within some um, overarching constraints, um, like 
open courses is going to be difficult. And lastly, um, we do want to get input into the design. And one way to do that is that through the website we've set up an ideas and user stories um, area. Um, please go to it. It is open to everyone. So not just to the OU, not just to our partners, it's open to everyone. And uh, on that we've got good ideas. So um, shorter or longer good ideas for what FutureLearn might contain or how it might be. And also user stories. User stories are short narratives of a day in the life of a typical future movement user. And we've already got a good stock of those. And we've also added to those educator stories. So day in the life of a typical MOOC educator as well. They're really worth looking at, um, including one horror story one from things that might go wrong in a MOOC. So that these are all publicly accessible, and they're not giving away any trade secrets about what's going to be in FutureLearn. However, the FutureLearn developers are taking very careful note of them, and I know that. Um, so anything you put up on there, you can submit your own user stories, and also you can add comments to them, and they will be taken note of, and they will help to inform the development of the future learning proposition. So that's where we are now. I hope I've given you some idea of where future learning is and where it's going. Do we have The Vice Chancellor insists a lot on support and quality when talking about future learning. So, how do you see quality? So, quality comes in at lots of different stages. So, quality in terms of the design of the platform. Um, so, we have to make sure that the user experience is of a high quality. And in fact, I'm going straight on from this to a meeting of the Future Learn Proposition team to talk about quality assurance of and how we're going to really embed that into the platform. So that's the first thing. Secondly, there's a quality of the content. And that we're going, that primarily, that's going to be the responsibility of the partners. Um, and the reason for that is because it's their brand that's at stake, that the partners um, will not want to put up um, material that's of low quality. But there will be two sorts of quality assurance. One is that there will be, there will be guidelines as to what is allowed. Technical guidelines in terms of video quality, for example, it has to be at HD quality, um, but other guidelines, accessibility guidelines. And also we want to set up a, a lightweight quality assurance process for the content. We might do that by peer review. So um, for those partners who um, have a court ready to go up, to have a sample area where people can test it out, and for partners to have um, peers who are other partners of the universities um, doing a peer review of the course before it goes up. So we're looking at putting in place a robust um, quality assurance. And the last, of course, is very rapid feedback from um, the students themselves. So to make sure that if anything does go wrong, and inevitably it will because things always go wrong when you've got um, you know, a new open system, then that we can pick up on that very quickly. So we will be having moderators um, who will be um, monitoring the activities and responding very quickly to either technical or educational problems. So that's roughly how we want to put the quality assurance in place. And oh, sorry, finally, the quality assurance of the examining. So um, we 
again, we want to make sure that any examining process will be robust and of um, high quality. And I can't say more about that at the moment, except to say that there will be a high quality examining the credit system, probably paid for. Um, is the idea that um, the different universities will all come together with a sort of similar look for the uh, future learn books, or everybody will do their own thing? And um, certainly, I've just done the, um, one of the Coursera MOOCs in the University of Edinburgh, and that was all video-led, uh, no text at all. Are these going to be a mixture of text? Are we going to do more text than some videos, or will it be, are we going to move into mostly video or what? So, right from the start, we're going to provide training and support for the partners, and so the OU will be leading on training uh, about what, you know, what's required to um, deliver and support and enable effective learning. And that has to be a blended learning approach. So it can't just be delivering of videos and some text. So that's why we've been emphasizing so much the social learning aspect of it. It has to engage social learning. So for example, uh, having a cohort of students that you are um, progressing with, but also bringing in social learning elements. Um, and also, as I say, part of the quality assurance to make sure that um, these elements are embedded into it in the peer review. And then also the pedagogic Lego blocks, so to expose the pedagogy, not to hide it, not to have it implicit, but to really make it transparent so that you, you choose particular pedagogic Lego blocks, you choose a peer assessment Lego block, you choose a video delivery Lego block, so that you are thinking about learning design um, all the way through um, your um, construction and um, delivery of the course. So, you know, obviously it's early days yet, but that's the intention um, to raise pedagogy to the fore so that people are thinking not just about the technical standards but also the educational standards and processes. Um, yeah, I was just wondering, because uh, you're talking about all the different partners that are involved, um, and at the moment you've just been talking about single university offerings of their courses. Is there any plan to collaborate on a cross-institutional basis to deliver content? I think the answer to many of these questions are anything's possible. Right. So at the moment we're thinking about what the, you know, the initial offering is. And the initial offering is that it's likely to be a single university offering the course. There's nothing that I've seen in the platform that will stop um, being offered across multiple courses if they want to um, offer joint courses or if they want to collaborate. In other ways, if they want to collaborate on assessment, for example. So um, the intention isn't to restrict the partners in terms of the way they design the courses or the way in which they cooperate and collaborate. So it will be on a future learn platform, but cooperating with, say, Coursera course might be a lot difficult. But within the future learn platform, yes, it should be possible to cooperate and collaborate on those courses. Michael, you can take a few more questions. Um, I've got to go in two minutes. Right. For future meetings, of course. One last question, then. Could you tell us uh, something about the, the business plan of uh, future? <laughs> <laughs> um, for two reasons. One is that um, it's outside my jurisdiction. I'm trying to be very careful. Um, you know, I, I'm a uh, joint future learn academic lead, um, and I'm trying to avoid mission creep. So I do know some things about the Future Learn Business Plan. I think what has been made public is that there will be 
<coughs> future loan won't be revenue earning, it's a company. Um, all profits from the company or all surpluses will be fed back into the company to improve the future loan proposition. Um, and it's clear that certification examining for credit will be a major part of the income. Um, any more than that, actually I can't really say. There are some other things that have been floated, like making use of ALs um, uh, to provide premium services or other tutoring services. Um, but whether that would happen and how that would happen. In relation to ALs, what I can say is that no AL will be made to contribute to a future loan course. It will be entirely voluntary. And whether it's at a, on a separate contract, uh, how it will work, I genuinely don't know yet. So there will be, you know, there is a business model that's still being worked on. Um, and um, genuinely, apart from raising money through accreditation, um, I don't yet know what's going to go into it. Okay, well, thanks very much, Mike. Thank you, everybody.